welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, here we are. This is episode 96, number 96. A uh, quick explanation, number 95, uh, kind of had a problem with that. It wouldn't upload, so I had to save an additional copy in a different file format. So that's why we have an episode 95 and 95A. The content is the same. The formats were different. And I didn't know that there was a problem with these uh, formats. I-, I couldn't get the normal one to upload, so I had to had to switch over. But then some people could not hear it. It, it just wouldn't play on their, their devices. So that's why I went. Uh, and fortunately, uh, Podbean or whoever it was got the got the problem sorted out and I was able to upload the uh, um, episode in its normal format and that is 95A. Uh, so let's get down to it. There's a lot of stuff to go over and talk about today. One of them is you would have to be on another planet to know that these two idiots, and I mean they're complete simpletons, um, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, uh, you know, they did an explosive interview, and they they called her called their own family racist, and all all the rest of this. You know, and I'm not really here. There's there's plenty of commentary on that, but it did did remind me that about I think it was about a year ago, maybe even before, maybe maybe like 14 months ago. But I remember seeing the story about a year ago. Uh, Prince Harry sold all of his hunting guns to another person probably in his social circle not necessarily a family member but somebody in the social circle uh, that he probably ran with you know and hunted with and everything he sold all his hunting guns for what was in US dollars sixty thousand dollars now how many guns there were and what the breakdown was between rifles I assume it's you know rifles and shotguns they're not allowed to own handguns, so is obviously none of those. So he's got, um, you know, he had probably, you know, three or four pieces. I would assume maybe maybe four. You know, let's just say let's just say it was five. Okay, that's that's twelve thousand dollars a piece. And um, you look at that and you say, man, these had to have been high end, very high end custom guns. So it'd be interesting to know because those are now instantly collectible. And you think think that $60,000 is a lot of money. But really, you know, talk to guys who collect class 3 weapons and you'll see, woo, that that's that's not that much. That's probably three nice class 3 weapons, you know. So um, you know, $60,000 is a lot of money. It's certainly more than I would ever spend on on gun purchases but to people who are who collect expensive high-end stuff um, that is quite a bit of money and probably they probably could have gotten more for it had they had he taken it to you know um, Rock Island or, or one of the auction houses strictly because it did belong to a royal so I was thinking about that I said well if those guns are collectible I would love to know and and they'll never do it because of the way it looks you know the the visual but wouldn't it be cool if you had the forgotten weapons guy go into and see the the personal collections of the british royal family as far as firearms go because when let's say king george the fifth then king george the sixth and probably you know edward the eighth the one who abdicated you know when they all when they all pass away when they all die what happens to their stuff does it just get passed down is it is it modified or is it is it basically uh uh repurposed to another because these things have got to be custom measured custom fitted and everything so the one that fit one person may not fit anybody else or may not fit them well so what happens to their to their guns or are they simply in a large armory collection and you know they can kind of go and you know i would imagine that say over the past since since maybe 1900 um you know hey there might be 20 30 40 guns in there you know that belong to deceased now deceased sovereigns um you know that'd be very interesting to think what does queen elizabeth own i mean um 
there was, and it's probably 25 years ago, but remember there was, there was a controversy in the news where they, they showed her she was hunting birds in Balmoral. She's 95, 94, 95 now, so, you know, this had to have been 25 years ago. Maybe, maybe not quite that many. But she shot a bird, and it was wounded. She goes over there and picks it up and, and does what bird hunters do. You know, they kind of pick it up by the neck and wring its neck, you know. And, and that was that was like a big controversy. They caught her on camera doing that. And it's like, hey, you know, that's just, that's just the way that whole thing goes. But it'd be very interesting to know. And, of course, you know, these things are going to be all what we would consider or call FUD guns. Um, they're hunting guns. Uh, they're the kind of guns that somebody you know, would use for the expressed purpose of hunting, not really target shooting. So I don't think you're going to find anything that's got target sights or built for the standards of the day, the, you know, the kind of cutting edge accuracy. You're just going to find, you know, stalking rifles and, and, and shotguns and, and, you know, various types. And when you think about it, hunting is one of the few things that royal family members can kind of do on their own. You know, they, they have... They have people who invite them on hunting trips and they go hunting. So it's reasonable to assume that they own the tools to do that with. And it's, you know, it's kind of a low risk deal. Hey, they're just out there. They're shooting birds or they're shooting boar or or stags or something. You know, it's not like they're racing cars or, or parachute jumping or, or doing other activities that would probably be considered too high risk especially for the ones that are in line succession to the crown but i would love to see that i and i bet i bet there's purdy's holland and hollands and all kinds of fine um weapons in there and you know it'd be very interesting to know how did the uk handgun ban affect them i would assume that most that they probably do own some of the handguns because there are permissions to own ones that are considered obsolete there's some legal definition as to what's obsolete so something that was i would assume like for instance if they owned a webley fosbury you know that was made in 19 you know 05 or something uh that they would have that they would still be able to retain that because it's an antique and and perhaps the ammunition for it is obsolete as well so it'd be very very interesting to uh, to know what their firearms holdings are but you know the royal <laughs> there's at least one set of royal idiots that do not own any and that at least in the story was reported because of the Meghan markle who is the duchess of sussex or whatever there was her objection to blood sports uh, same thing princess diana she didn't like blood sports either um you know and that's that's somebody's choice that's that's fine but, um, you know, you kind of wonder what the repercussions of that is, especially to somebody who grew up doing it and likes doing it and forcing them to choose is a always a terrible thing. So anyway, that's just an interesting, interesting sidelight of Guns of the Royals would be a very, very interesting, uh, very interesting documentary. And it'd be very, very cool to see what they what they actually have and how fancy it is or maybe how fancy it isn't. Who knows? Okay, another thing that uh, that has come up. I listen I listen to a lot of podcasts. I frankly I like podcasts better than television anymore, but um, you know, there's no there's nothing to listen to on the radio late night and podcasts have filled that filled that uh, area you know you can just as long as you've got an internet connection you can you can get into some content disturbingly a lot of the content that's that's out there um and it's produced by there there's some guys who just literally do probably three or four podcasts a week and this whole thing of they they are usually one or two times a show they bag on the boomers whoever that is i assume they would probably think i was i don't consider myself a boomer because i was born to me the boomer generation was the they were called they were called the baby boom because all the servicemen coming back from world war ii um if you were married you you wanted to have a family and kids so they immediately started having kids if you came back and were single 
there was a lot of pressure and a lot of, uh, you know, the, the, the social thing to do was get married and have kids. That was the thing to do. And um, so uh, that's what people did. That's what people did. And uh, so from 1945 to I think they, they it goes up to about 53 usually, but sometimes they extend it longer. You know, these, these things are all subjective. Uh, that was the baby boom generation. Now, most of them are about 70 now or getting there or just over it, you know. So they, they they bag on the boomers and their, you know, the angry boomers and their 1911s and blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, I think that they, if they actually had the experience and could look um, from w even when I started shooting, um, I would say that they would be very, very grateful. They should be very, very grateful. And here's, here's just a couple of examples. Um, of, of how things have changed for the better for the better uh, number one when I started shooting there was a thing called the DCM and the DCM was the director of civilian marksmanship and it was usually some colonel on a terminal assignment and they had a small office and their job was to provide uh, you know encouragement to civilian marksmen you know and they did that by doing a couple different things uh, they used to sell a lot of stuff the same way the modern CMP does. And then they would uh, also sell ammunition. And they'd sell targets and, you know, kind of the surplus stuff that, that the government didn't want anymore. Um, it used to be that, it, and it was a pretty good deal in the 50s. Uh, pretty good deal. You know, you could pick up a 1911 for 20 bucks, you know, 25 bucks, whatever, whatever it was. But you had to go through hoops to get it and I mean the hoops were you had to pr prove that you were a competitor and you had to go on a list and and uh, kind of the way it's the way that the CMP is selling 1911s today is kind of the way that they sold things back then then it got really restrictive I mean once the surplus weapons they had kind of kind of petered out all they had were M1s and so they would sell like 200 250 rifles a year and you had to go through all these hoops. You had to show that you'd fired in matches and provide the results and all this, whether you were a military member or not. They didn't care. Whether you were military, police, civilian, they did not care. Um, they would just sit here and go, you know, 250 a year. You got on a list, and you could be on that list for four or five years before you got a rifle. And when you did get a rifle, though, it was an awesome deal. The rifle actually cost $99 with with like $63 um, shipping and handling and packing, you know. So um, for 160 bucks, you got a service-grade M1 rifle. Great deal, but you had to be on it for forever. That changed in the uh, late 80s, early... In the late 80s, that changed to where they said, hey, you know, you can... We'll, we'll just sell rifles and you know they were just selling rifles to to uh, people who were qualified you still had to prove you were qualified still had to prove all this stuff I did get a DCM rifle back under that under that uh, regime and I remember I had to show not only had I competed but as but part of it was since I was a government uh, I had to show something showing that I had a secret security clearance or top secret. I don't know if I had a secret or top secret at the time. Um, I had to I had to show my secure something proving I had a security clearance and, and a whole bunch of stuff. And you put together this packet and you got the M1, you know, and um, but it was you had to prove competition that, you know, that notionally you were buying this rifle to compete with. And that's director of civilian marksmanship encouraged civilian marksmanship. Well, that went, you know, frankly, there was a lot of pressure and that, that transition to the CMP that we know today. Um, some people don't like the CMP. I have kind of mixed feelings about the CMP, mostly all good. There are a few little things like anybody would, a few little things I think they could do better. But anyway, uh, if you look, when I started shooting, there was no CMP. Now there is a CMP and you can thank a lot of the boomer older shooters for that they demanded this stuff and and worked it through the system so that we have what we have today another thing happened um, there used to be great import laws like in the 50s 
and up until you know the assassinations in the 1960s and you know they found out Lee Harvey Oswald bought a rifle through the mail um, let's see I don't know about these other guys I don't think they really used imported weapons for any of the other high-profile assassinations but anyway 1968 rolls around 68 gun control act effectively cut off imports okay it was done stuff that came in in the 50s was was around and the stuff 1986 um that all got changed and we had the imports and of course up until about huh, 2013 2014 so you're talking nearly 30 years we've had great large importations of surplus weapons that have have really only petered out because the supply of weapons is is effectively done i mean when they're looking in ethiopia is it ethiopia where these last latest ones coming in if they're looking in ethiopia um i don't know that we're going to find a whole lot more out there but there are there are probably some caches that are not yet available and uh and they'll come in but it'll never be like the old days when there was just literally crates of Moisin the Gant rifles just showing up, you know. And uh, you, you could buy these things for less than than uh, $50 or $50 or less. You could buy, buy them all day long. So the import laws, they can thank us for that. Uh, other things they can thank us for, when I started shooting, when I started shooting, shooting was effectively 90% hunting oriented. And I was a hunter as a kid. I used to go out hunting. That's if you wanted to shoot, you went hunting. You there was no um, target shooting or or stuff available. You you didn't really unless you were practicing to hunt, you didn't really go out and shoot. So all the guns, you know, the take for example the Winchester 94. Hey, that was designed for hunting. That was not designed to take out on range take out on a range day and shoot 200 rounds through just wasn't made for that um all the hunting rifles were were designed to be as streamlined and lightweight as kind of as possible and then you took them out and you know carried them around until you saw the trophy deer or or other animal and used it you know so it was all basically very very heavy sport sport shooting was hunting well that that went till about 19 till the 1980s and then there was a big transformation big transformations that came in were tactical shooting uh with both pistols and rifles um the the games of of uh you know things nascent forms of three-gun competition nascent forms of of some of the practical competitions especially with pistols really started with pistols and rifles kind of caught on later um, but you know those are all innovations that, that did not exist then that do now and that's because of the older shooters so really good stuff uh, we talked about target shooting tactical it used to be that the only pistol shooting was square range bullseye that was it and while that is still a good thing to do it's still good and it's still fun and everything else there was no tactical shooting there was none and uh, the first tactical shoot i ever went to i've told this story on the podcast before but i'll i'll just reference it quickly again um you know dudes were showing up with everything i mean with everything the guy next to me a friend of mine next to me showed up with a single action ruger and i can't remember the caliber i think it might have been 30 carbine or some some ridiculous thing like that and uh so we were you know we were all having a great time i actually i was actually disqualified because i had a browning high power and i didn't reload i mean they, they didn't tell you you had to reload but i was disqualified at the end for having an unfair advantage for, because i had a browning high power and, and so you know and you can imagine that it was a lot of a uh, lot of other kind of revolvers i don't remember really many 19 if any 1911s but uh, you know that was just that was just it's like hey man you know and it's like hey if this is really tactical shooting and and it was really looked more like bullseye shooting it just was different ranges and on the, the equivalent back then of the b27 target i imagine that's what it was but 
Um, you know, so it was, it was very, very different. Now, you know, face it, look at, if you look at that kind of evolution in gear to what we have now, you can thank a lot of these, a lot of these shooters who were, who were in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, who were just making all this happen. So when these guys start bagging on the older shooters and how, how they've screwed things up, hey, they, they, they need to start looking at these, these other things. Another, another innovation, improved ammo. Used to be FMJ was it. And if you saw, if you can ever find the old gun magazines, like in a, in a thrift store or some, some place like that, um, if you ever find collections of those, they are, they always had the semi-auto versus revolver debate. And it was, and one of the, one of the points that the revolver guy would always make, um, is that hey you know when you're shooting a semi-auto you got full patch ammo and it doesn't perform as well as this lead hollow point I can shoot in my 357 and yada yada yada. So the the improvement in ammo is something that has that's been coming around for a long time and uh, you know most of these guys who were again bagging on the older shooters are not remembering that you know, we, we were the ones who brought out the Black Talon and demanded that. They had to change the name of it because somehow Black Talon was a bad a bad name. But um, all this high-performance ammo, silver tips, all this stuff has been around for a long, long time. And it came as, as of market pressure put on by, you know, older generations of shooters. Uh, also, better ranges. Um you know, and it used to be, used to be that you went to a rate, most ranges were public, run by the municipalities. And you can, you just, you know, I mean, you can just map, imagine how that went. And I mean, if you shot pistol, you shot at 25 yards and you shot at a bullseye target. And that was it. That was what you did. And, you know, so ranges of even talking about 15 yards, 10 yards, or ranges where you could possibly do some sort of movement or engage more realistic looking targets none of that was real none of that was was happening and except in a very few probably select places but most places you know and they would they would judge you you know this is why smith and wesson and colt revolvers were considered the gold standard of, of guns because hey if every if the measurement of success for your gun is how it shoots at a 25 yard bullseye target well, you know, what kind of gun are you going to get? Either, I can tell you the Browning High Power did, did okay, but it didn't do that great. Um, it certainly wasn't like what a uh, Smith & Wesson um, K14 would do. So, um, And again, you know, it was that kind of shooting, so that had a, a heavy impact. Once we started getting better ranges and better holsters and equipment and other things so that we could actually operate in a tactical manner things things changed quite a bit and that brings into the last point of the equipment revolution the the holsters and things that were available in the 1970s versus now um, it's literally like the dark ages versus say the second world war you know it just has a a massive change and massive differences um first 1911s i was ever issued came in a black leather holster looked just like the world war one holster which was brown but these were these were black because in the 50s they decided they wanted all those things in black not brown and uh that was it you know that was that was your holster and you had the same kind of cheesy canvas pouches for your magazines and you carried a whopping two magazines and you did not carry one in the pistol so you know that was that was how that works and think think how differently things are now so the older shooters you know the people who came before me i think i had a lot of respect for i mean they changed it from predominantly a hunting to a much more comprehensive shooting opportunities and really broadened the sport quite a bit really broadened the sport quite a bit so i have a lot of respect for that and and you know the other the last point i'll make on this is um 
you know, the uh, legis getting the NRA involved in legislation. It used to be in the 70s, NRA was just about, it was the traditional training and, you know, youth programs and all this. Well, there, there was a, I think they called it the Cincinnati Revolution. They had a, they had the uh, annual meetings in Cincinnati and people showed up mad. The members showed up mad and voted out and a bunch of the people who were just status quo and voted in people who wanted to get politically active to protect gun rights. So all of that has been set up by the people who came before us. Okay, another uh, another issue was I was listening to again I was listening maybe I listened to too many podcasts but I was listening to one where uh, a guy was griping he has a private range which he uses for law enforcement training I assume it, it, they're 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 not very specific about it but I would think that it's a range that gets rented out and used by law enforcement people so they can practice their skills and especially their rifle skills at, at longer distances and uh anyway the crux of the story is um a politician asked him if can i can i bring out my friend who's a fellow politician who is a former marine this guy's a really crack shot this guy's great and he would really uh really love the opportunity to use your facility this guy says yes of course the crack shot former marine comes out and his equipment's all ginked up and he can't seem to <laughs> to do to zero his weapon or anything and we've all kind of been there with this then he finds out that you know the guy was a marine and graduated from basic in like 1984 or something you know so we're talking you know 37 years ago so you kind of add at least 18 to 20 years on that and you can kind of figure the guy's age and obviously he's not been shooting regularly and as we all know shooting is a perishable skill so he was bagging on this guy and all this and here's what i will would tell anybody here's what i'll tell anybody here's what i expect when somebody tells me that they're former military and they want to shoot i expect they know a couple of things one of those things they know is that guns are inherently dangerous if they're mishandled so i expect them to know that there are certain times when they can touch the weapon certain times they cannot touch the weapon um, that they need to know how it operates and they need to know to keep it pointed in a safe direction and their finger off the trigger okay i expect them to know that as a basic and i don't care what their mos was if they were an infantry uh, long-range reconnaissance guy or a designated marksman or something else i would expect i would expect more but those are the basic things because there are people in the military who are not weapons experts um, because a person was in the military it does not make them um, you know carlos hathcock or or uh, some of these other guys it just doesn't there are guys who are helicopter mechanics and guess what the weapon is just something they have to do there are people in medical service. There are people in personnel. There are people who handle fuel for the, you know, fleets of tanks and armored vehicles. So we have a, we have basically uh, people who have a lot of different jobs, and they're not essentially frontline combat arms type people. So you know they're going to know something about weapons, but they're not going to be small arms experts the way you would think that. Uh, a special operations or a frontline you know a uh, uh, basically infantry guy is going to know weapons they're they're just not they're going to have lesser and what do you expect from them? same thing with police there are police who probably are are gun gun guys and gals who know firearms very very well then there are some that that don't it's just a part of their job and maybe they do something else as a primary task rather than running around chasing bad guys so um you know that's what i would expect from somebody from those backgrounds is that they would they would know basic gun safety but i would not expect them to be you know um complete knowledgeable experts in everything okay uh from our friend of the podcast we got a uh got a link sent to us about is the glock 19 obsolete and basically this was on military arms channel and it's the the premise of this is that these medium-sized service automatics 
taking that the larger size would be say a 1911 a glock 17 you know guns that size are somehow obsoleted by smaller guns okay so and he's not even talking about the 1911 and the glock 17 he's really talking about now the glock 19 is facing that same sort of uh, situation because there are smaller glocks that now have high capacity magazines if you get these aftermarket magazines for them and i'm not going to go through all the numbers you know, glock 48x i'm not going through all that his whole thing was that these smaller guns are coming out with high capacity and therefore they're making these medium-sized guns obsolete and and it's a very logical argument why would you carry something that's larger that doesn't seem to have more capability and the the answer is self-evident uh, you will because they're not the same capability the um, if, if their rationale was true then back in the 1950s the Colt Combat Commander which was shorter but had the same capacity as a 1911 would have made the 1911s all completely obsolete and everybody would have Colt would have only made the Colt Commander and the Colt Combat Commander and that would have been it uh, if that rationale was true uh, small frame Smith & Wesson or or short very short barrel Smith & Wesson revolvers would have made all the other revolvers obsolete if you can get a model 28 with a two and a half inch barrel um, why would you want a model 28 with a four inch barrel or six inch barrel why would you want that because you can get the same capability in a smaller package the answer to that is is shootability not all of us are like uh, YouTube creator channels and other channels where guess what the ammunition companies like you and they sponsor you so they give you ammunition and you can go out and you have your own range and you can shoot all the time and you can become very proficient with these smaller guns but smaller guns have debits one of them is the ammunition performance is not quite up to what the longer barrels are now maybe that doesn't matter but maybe it does but but maybe it doesn't matter but the other thing that matters is they the larger guns are usually a little more stable they have a longer sight radius and they're they're easier for people who don't shoot every day to shoot and therefore they are a good choice I would also say that they will feel and actually functionally be a little more accurate because they are because they're bigger and heavier they have more stability so therefore they're the trigger pull even if the trigger pull is exactly the same it will feel better on a larger gun larger heavier gun because it has more mass and it's not going to move around as much if you as you're pulling the trigger if it's not a perfect trigger if it's a service type trigger so it's that's why these guns are very very good these medium-sized and even full-sized guns um, you know there's to the ability to go micro 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 is what really drives that is concealability not shootability and so uh, that's that's the thing that they're not really looking that hard at so the Glock 19 is not obsolete the the uh, any more than the Glock 17 is obsolete now maybe it's not ideal for someone's specific purposes but it is not obsolete it is not obsolescent and uh, you know they're still going to make handguns that size and even larger the full-size ones into the foreseeable future that's just the way it is um, that's just the way it is so I think that their their premise on that is wrong this is this gets into the kind of the it's it's, it's intellectual inflation where I've got to produce something maybe I can produce this you know they need to create content so they create content that perhaps they don't even believe themselves and I would say that's probably very true they probably I don't know that this guy actually even believes this himself so that's the uh, interesting part of the uh, uh, how big is too big and is smaller better and how much better is it is it better at all
And that's something that a lot of people have to say. What I what I will say is, in my opinion, what I do not like seeing is an adult new to shooting and their first gun is a subcompact or micro-sized gun. I don't like seeing that. And I don't like seeing that for a lot of reasons. I think, and the... Uh, the big offender is the uh, SIG 365. A lot of people, they've literally have, have sold tons of these. And they're good guns. They're good guns. For a new person, I, I prefer to remain dubious. I think you're a lot better off choosing something maybe a little more pedestrian, a little larger, something that you can shoot better. And, and you know, they used to actually have this as an argument, what's the best first handgun for someone? Um, and, and really the rationale hasn't really changed in, in, in years and years. And that is they should have a 22 first that they do a lot of practice with and then gradually move into guns that are more powerful. And the, the ideal equilibrium is you should carry a gun, you should carry the largest caliber gun that you can shoot and carry effectively. So you have those two things going for you. You have the caliber and you have the size. And there's an equilibrium in that size. These mid-size automatics like the Glock 19 are, are actually very, very good. They strike that balance. The same way that the old Smith & Wesson Model 10 struck that balance. It's big enough, but not too big. It's powerful enough, but not too powerful. And it really kind of fit into kind of that every man could shoot one of those uh, with with a just a modicum of practice and expertise. So that's kind of what I would look for. Um, that's that's where I would go. So, but I when I see people who buy these very expensive kind of micro guns that really seem to be more designed for like police detectives or undercover guys or something um, I usually don't see that ending as well they usually don't shoot up to their expectations the guns shoot fine but the the marksmen cannot reach their own expectations and they usually kind of walk away disappointed if not frustrated okay we are now going to go to my favorite part of the podcast which is questions and answers so first thing is um, I didn't I got asked this question about three different ways so I just thought rather than phrase it as a question I'll just go ahead and provide an update I bought a kit to make my own percussion caps and I bought it from a place called sharpshooter 22 reloader and it took me about a month to get it and uh, it's a little device that you can take uh, aluminum from soda cans and you can you put them in this uh, this little die thing and it's, it's all works by hand and you can punch out you just kind of need a rubber hammer there or I actually use a leather hammer you hit the top of it and it punches out something that resembles a percussion cap empty uh, in aluminum and from there you take after you punch out a number of these things you mix some chemicals which you can buy from them and you're producing kind of old flash powder you know the old the kind of the stuff that's in cap guns um, it, it, it seems to look and smell like that to me but you produce that and you put it in the uh, you put it in the caps and then you put a drop of uh, acetone on top as a it activates a hardening agent and uh, kind of keeps everything in there let them dry for 24 hours and you have reasonable percussion caps uh, I have made the caps I have fired them in empty chambers and they seem to have adequate power to ignite a powder charge the next stage I'm going to do is to load my revolver take it down to the range use these caps and see if it ignites a 2f powder charge and i'll try maybe i'll try some pyrodex and and a few other things to see what it will ignite and what it won't i suspect it will work they seem to be powerful enough so i don't see any problem 
the uh, the kit makes, and it's only one kit they sell. They say it makes a number eleven percussion cap. The difference between the ten and the eleven is the uh, length of the shank. The ten is longer. I've tried this on several different uh, cap and ball guns, and it seems to fit on each one and cycle around. So that doesn't seem to be a problem. They, they actually fit just as well, if not even a little better, than the factory caps. The other thing I've noticed, and I have, dry, like I said, I have fired them without um, a charge in the uh, cylinder, is that they don't fragment and jam the action the way that the uh, copper cups do. They seem to hold together a little bit and they, they fall out. They don't, they don't fall into the action and jam it because they stay, they stay together. So I'm really happy with that. I, but the, the downside is they are not beautiful, okay? They do not look pretty. And if you're kind of looking at them, they, they kind of look like what they are, kind of crumpled aluminum on the, uh, uh, on the edge of, uh, and they got kind of these rough edges because it's, like I said, it's just a punch that, that knocks these things out. But they seem to work. And I can't remember the complete cost. I think the complete cost was the tool itself is about 50 bucks and the priming compound, a package of it. And they give you instructions on how to mix these different powders together. Um, that is about 20, 20 bucks. So if you buy two of the, the powder packets, and the tool you're into it for like with shipping i think you're into it for like 80 some dollars and uh the good but the good news is you have enough to make thousands of caps i mean you could i could literally make thousands of caps with the uh, material i have the bad news is they are rather labor intensive um you could produce 50 caps in a couple hours probably two hours um it's it's uh you punch them out then you have to mix this stuff and then you have to you know very carefully uh fill your percussion cap about halfway with this stuff um i pack it a little bit then i put in the acetone and it's supposed to wait a minute uh, wait five minutes and then you kind of pack it again and let it sit for 24 hours to completely dry and you've got a percussion cap that all seems to work but it is a laborious process i liken it to using the old the totally old school Lee loaders if anybody ever had any experience with those you know yes you can turn out ammunition but it's not high volume okay it's not high volume but you could turn out and, and you know you have to balance that because 50 caps will last you <laughs> probably an afternoon shooting unless you have some super slick way of uh, loading a cap and ball pistol I mean they are fairly you know labor intensive to load so um, even if you're using the paper cartridges that are that are pre-measured, they're still um, they're still pretty. You know, you shoot 50 rounds out of your cap and ball gun, and you're you're probably done for the afternoon. It's probably taking you the afternoon to kind of kind of do that. So it actually works really well. Um, I'm very pleased, and I'll, I'll tell you, um, it's since there are no caps in the store, I may just go with this. So the cost per cap would probably be one or two cents a piece. I kind of like that too because. 100 caps now or if you could find them are like seven eight bucks and i'm sure that the price is going to probably go up i'm i would not be surprised to see 100 caps selling for 10 bucks which is you know that's getting up there so maybe this kit it it may as even though it is slightly imperfect it may be something that's very very usable so i'm really uh I'm really it's a positive good product and it took about a month to get so there you go Okay, here is another question. What are some fake innovations you've seen? Innovations that claim to be brown, groundbreaking, but on examination are really just kind of overstated and not as influential as people think. So I kind of took this question to be kind of what are claimed to be the firsts or the bests of something. And, um, you know, you hear this a lot. Here's, here's one I thought of the Savage model 1907 pistol which is the first what do they call it the first uh, double stack magazine in an automatic pistol so I, I basically investigate this and you know it's not it's 
they are kind of offset, but it is not a true double stack magazine as we would as we would think of it. And uh, it's a single feed. Obviously, you know most pistol magazines are double stack single feed, but it they're spaced out more. It's a thinner magazine, so um, it's not a true double stack. It's not a true double stack. It was pretty good for its day. You got you got the requisite number of shots in there, but it really didn't. When people say, well, that's the first one, well, it wasn't copied by anybody else, and it's really not a true double stack. So it's kind of a fake, just kind of a fake thing people throw out there to to let you believe that the, the idea of a double stack is a lot older than it really is. Okay, another one is same year, 1907 Winchester, the first assault rifle. Um, not true. Anybody who's ever dealt with one knows that it's really not it's you know it's it's one of those things the the magazines are not quick change magazines and they came i've only seen 10 rounders supposedly they made 15 rounders but i've never actually seen one uh, i believe i may have seen a picture of one but you never know pictures can be photoshopped too so i don't know if that's it real um did they make them select fire there's actually debate about that um some of them were after or obviously converted to select fire but um, I don't know that that was a real option and it didn't really it, it really did the only reason to make them fully automatic was not to make them select fire I should say was not to make a select fire ground weapon it was so that they would have something in an airplane because early airplanes weren't very powerful and you had to save weight so if you had two guys a camera and you know, you didn't have a lot of extra capacity for machine guns, and they didn't really have very good machine guns at the time, so you took up a Winchester 1907. There was a brief period where the 1907 was carried by observers, and they shot at other airplanes with it, in which case, uh, because the targets are so fleeting, um, select fire would be, would be helpful. So rather than squeezing off one shot and hitting the the canvas fuselage of an enemy plane, you might you might hit it three or four times and and hit something more vital. So it it was not the first assault rifle. It it really didn't set the pattern. It really didn't get copied. It it I suppose you could call the 351 an intermediate cartridge, but it was kind of a it's closer to pistol power than it is true intermediate cartridge same thing with the m1 carbine that's also called the first practical assault rifle and it wasn't because the the um the fully autumn the, the select fire versions of that did not come out until after the stg 44 and the m1 carbine round the 30 caliber m1 carbine round is closer to being a pistol uh round it's it's like the it's a lot like the 351 it is you can call it an intermediate cartridge because no pistols, except much later, were ever, were ever uh, um, chambered for it. But you would call it that uh, that kind of a thing. You couldn't really call it that because it, it came in second, and they're a lot closer to pistol power than they are intermediate rifle cartridges as we understand them today. So those are three that I can think of. And there's, prob there's probably scads more. There's probably scads more. Um, the, a lot of people call the, um, uh, what was it, the Takarev 1916, the first assault rifle. Well, it really wasn't because it was chambered in 6.5 Japanese. And that was a full power cartridge. Granted, on the lower end of full power cartridges, but that was a full power cartridge. So... So that kind of goes into the really the battle rifle, and and it was uh, it was select fire, so it did have that going for it. It was a very good gun, very very good rifle, and they made some and they served into you know here and there into World War II, but um, it was never it was never fully developed or or manufactured in a large scale, which is actually kind of a shame. Okay, here is another one. Many content creators endlessly compare infantry rifles. Do they know what they are talking about? Um, I have to say they, they actually don't. And, and here's, here's the reason why. It's not really their fault, but 
They will sit there and compare the most minute details on rifles as if they make a tremendous difference. And the fact of the matter is they don't. And here is the proof of why that is so. You have the French army in World War I. And you have the German army in World War I. The French army were equipped with the first smokeless powder rifle, the Lebel 1886 which was a rifle designed to very quickly take advantage of the new smokeless powder technology. Therefore, it was not innovative. It had things that we would consider not to be very good features. The two-piece stock, the uh, um, tube magazine, kind of a bolt that was adapted from another rifle. It was, it was, you know, it was put together because they wanted to get this superior technology um, into the field as quickly as they could, and it achieved that. And it is a, a basically a good rifle. Then you have the German army who is equipped with what was considered to be the zenith of rifles at that time, which was the Gewehr 98 or the GEW 98, the Mauser 98. Um, excellent. It, it did clip loading. It loaded faster. The action was stronger. Uh, the sights were better. The bolt was was refined uh, from earlier Mauser designs. It was an excellent, excellent rifle. Okay. So if if all you do is look, kind of look at those two things, well, the Germans should have won World War One in weeks. They should have. The French should never have been able to stop them at the Marne. They never should have basically been able to stabilize the uh, the Western Front. They never should have stopped the Germans at Verdun, and they never should have stopped the Germans in the spring 1918 offensive. And yet they did these things. And how is this possible if their rifle was so inferior? Because they are the opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think the content creators never quite address that. They just talk about how much better one rifle is than another, or they just point out the flaws of a rifle. But what they don't understand is, if you are an infantryman, you live with that weapon and I mean you know it inside and out and frankly the differences they point out which seem huge to us uh, didn't really matter on the ground in those places I'm sure the French would have preferred a more modern rifle but the fact of the matter is their rifle was sufficiently reliable sufficiently accurate and sufficiently powerful and those are three things that that uh, really are important to an infantryman and that that trumps a lot of the other things a lot of the other things are nice to have but you have to have those three characteristics um, the only time this calculus changes is when you when you go from a different class of rifle like the m1 rifle outclassed the earlier bolt actions so therefore it did make a significant difference because it was fundamentally very different from the rifles it opposed but even when you look back at the spanish-american war the um, and and everybody points out that it's it's i don't want to say there's no truth to it that there's a myth but the crag was not all that inferior to the spanish mauser and to the troops that were issued the crag they were actually they knew it they used it it the advantages of it were were uh, well known and well liked and it also the other the other nice part was for the jungle fighting which was in cuba and in the philippines the crag carbine was a very handy piece of equipment uh probably a little better than the, the long infantry rifle mauser but the mauser was ballistically superior and it it, it also loaded faster it didn't take too long after the war for for the ordnance people to know that the the crag was not a design that was going to go anywhere um, you couldn't develop it you couldn't improve it um, it you couldn't put a tremendously powerful car a more powerful cartridge in it and this is kind of it back in the days remember spanish-american war they're using gatling guns still so you know the infantry rifle power even a little bit of power seemed to make some difference but the fact of the matter is the big myth that the crag was so inferior to the spanish mauser that that it was just outclassed everywhere just as simply not true if it were true the spain would have won the spanish-american war just that simple um 
they, they never take into account that there's all these supporting things. There's artillery, there's logistics, there's all these other things that help help make a victory you know a victory just doesn't happen it's it's made and while the infantry rifle may be a part of it um you know is it it's it and it goes on to today to the endless debate of it used to be the endless debate ak versus ar well the fact of the matter is they are close enough they are close enough in capability that it probably doesn't matter you know the ar's got some nicer features and where the ar shines is it's much more modular and easier to update and while the ak may be behind it is it far enough behind it to matter and that's that's a that's a decision that uh that people need to look at but it's it doesn't really matter that much and that's why when they you know and you can watch youtube videos and podcasts where they just endlessly go through it and if you look at a labelle and you look at a gewehr 98 um you know and you had to choose it's like hey you know guess what you're going to go back in the time machine so you better choose you got to only choose one of these two it's probably no real secret which one you're going to choose and it's not going to be the labelle but the labelle was fine it actually served up and into world war ii uh the 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 damning thing of the labelle was that when the germans captured them they wouldn't even issue them to second line or police troops or anything else and they the germans were big users of captured stuff um but those they just kind of put off to the side and said no this is just a little too old and and doesn't have the features we want but other than that though the labelle you know gave great service and considering it was the first one it's absolutely remarkable how long lasting it actually was how long lived the labelle was so you know think about that whenever you're talking to these people um there's a lot of there's a lot of things i could say um in a historical sense i think they do a very very good job when they start talking about what an infantryman needs or like they have lived the life um, unless they've lived the life I would take what they say with a grain of salt that's what I would say because they haven't been infantrymen uh, they don't know the relationship between an infantryman and his weapons the familiarity you have because you're carrying this thing around for weeks or months I mean it's never out of arm's reach and you are responsible to make sure that it's clean to the to the max every little nook and cranny is cleaned um they open the action countless times they 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 just live with it and it becomes a piece of equipment that they're very very familiar and very very expert in um not that that going back to what we said earlier though uh that doesn't last for life that'll that'll kind of uh um like like every other shooting skill it's kind of perishable so uh you know you there are guys who used an m1 and then 40 years later somebody hands them one and they're you know they're kind of fumbling with it a little bit because they don't they don't have the immediate familiarity with it that they probably once had okay what is an m1912 or an m12 steyr han pistol uh you know i'll be honest with you the steyr han pistol has never been all that intriguing to me um it's kind of a it's a cool design and it's one of those ones that you have to feed through the top with stripper clips or magazine chargers it takes its own unique ammo but it's largely interchangeable with nine millimeter largo um depending on who made the ammo and when but it usually i say this because i owned one for a short time years and years and years ago and i remember i shot nine millimeter largo in it because i didn't know what nine millimeter styre even was uh it was an innovative and kind of fun design because uh, it was a kind of a uh, rotating barrel deal you know but the fixed magazine and it was kind of long it was kind of clunky um it was a fun period piece um but it's not that intriguing to think that it came out in like 1912 1913 but the 1911 was out and when you look at the two designs um yeah if you had to choose one of those you would not choose the steyr hans so um other than that you can google it but uh 
I think they had a very brief career in World War One, and then kind of lived on a little bit in Austria. And then uh, in World War Two, some of them were um, rechambered for nine millimeter Luger and given to people who probably would never go near a combat zone because that is not a great <laughs> that is not the gun you want to have if somebody's really mad at you in world war ii so anyway that's it okay and here's our last question and i don't know that i can sufficiently answer this but are carry optics here to stay or a fad i am going to say that they'll be here in some capacity but they're never going to you'll never see a day when every pistol has one on it and you'll you just won't see that day now the the tacti coolers and and people who like these things will say i'm wrong but here's why i think they're a fad okay what was the last handgun fad that is essentially gone now uh, well, one of them I can think of is lasers. Remember, they even had the uh, the laser grips. Um, basically, they were they were big for about a few years. Then they were gone. They're gone. Nobody really sells those things anymore, and nobody really looks for them. I'm sure maybe you can find a gun. I think Smith and Wesson owns them now, um, but I don't think you would really find a gun that's equipped with those anymore. And the reason is because it's an inefficient sighting system. Um, you turn it on, and if you're looking around for the red dot, fishing around for that, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is looking down your sights, getting a sight picture, concentrating on a squeeze, or or shooting very very quickly. It's it just wasn't. It was a good idea, but in but in, in in application, it just didn't work out that well. So the light lasers that go on the front of guns. Uh, on handguns and the laser grips are things that that nobody's really looking for anymore nobody's really looking at those that being said i still have a, a cheap laser on my shotgun uh simply because that's a a weapon that's much more conducive to the use of something like that and and frankly you know i've got uh <laughs> I've got a flashlight and a and also a uh, the the iron sights on it. So I, I I always go to the iron sights first. Those other things are just things that help. The 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 only real tangible benefit of a of a laser is they do have an intimidation factor. If somebody is paused and they see the laser on their chest and they think, well, that means that the gun's pointed at my chest. So that's it. Another one was uh, was lights. Uh, a lot of people. Unless you have a specific application, like you do a lot of night and a lot of dark stuff, uh, lights really, everybody's got that rail on the front now. And, and in fact, that's kind of the mark of a modern gun is you've got that rail that you can hang something on. Um, but you don't see that many lights on guns. You don't, you don't see them around. I mean, um, the reason is because they add bulk and complexity. Carry optics are even worse. Um, the... The ones I've had experience with, and I've handled a few of these things, not a lot, but a few, um, they're, they're a problem. You you go ahead and you you bring them up, and unless you have the dot in the, the site, if you've lost the dot, and then you're fidgeting around with your gun to find it, I, I just don't know how that works in a self-defense situation. I don't know how that fits in or how that works. Um, you just don't have the time to fool with that. You're much better off even if you don't see the rear sight you're much better off focusing just on the front sight and aligning that with your target and uh, other things will probably fall into place i actually think that some of the high-vis sights they put on the front of guns now they're ugly and they they kind of look stupid but i think those are actually a little better idea in a lot of applications than the clunky big sight that's on top and it can get loose and the battery can be dead you know there's a there's a whole little host of problems that happen with these things um i would say that you'll probably still see them in competition you'll probably see them a lot of places i don't think i've seen any police carrying them until that happens um i would say that uh, you're unless unless there's a an improvement in the technology and somehow police carry them I don't really see them really catching on more than they have now and they're they're pretty popular now 
but it's it's a gamer thing right now I don't think it's going to be a self-defense thing for for quite a while I just don't think it will be well that's it for this edition of old school guns if you have any questions or comments please you go ahead and leave them on the comments section on Podbean, which is our primary carrier the other thing you can do is um, email it to me at kbmakel at aol.com that is kbmakel at aol.com and i will answer your question on the next podcast but until then this is old school guns out <laughs>